But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. This episode will serve as a kind of book study. A what? Homework assignment where we just kind of had to do the work oh, that to keep exciting. up with what's going on. I feel like it's the same for a lot of people in tennis right now. There have been 33.72 tournaments the last two weeks. Mm-hmm. I don't really think that's starting off a lot of excitement. Do you? Post-US Open... There's Labor Cup, there's Davis Cup, BJK Cup, and then a lot of tournaments where people are trying to make some money and potentially qualify for the year-end championships. On the women's side, there are a lot of spots left and still around 20 people eligible for remaining spots in the finals. What are some of the results that happened the last two weeks? Well, I honestly, I don't even go back to like the week after the U.S. Open. Starting in Tokyo, the WTA 500 tournament there, Sam Sanova beat Jung Chin Wen. In Seoul, Alexandrova beats Ostapenko. We've got the second North African title winner in WTA history, Mayar Sharif, winning in Parma. Krejcikova's back, winning two titles in a row. And then Ans Shabur sort of ushered a tournament into Tunisia for the first time at the WTA Tour level, and Elisa Mertens wins that one. On the men's side, Moselle Sonigo beats Bublik San Diego. The men were in San Diego. Now the women are going to be there starting today. I think Madison Keys is about to get that tournament underway as we record. While the men were there, Brandon Nakashima took the title in Tel Aviv, Djokovic, who now that he's been quote-unquote, allowed to play tennis again. He is he's just wiping the floor, left, right, <laughs> and center. He won in Tel Aviv. In Sofia, Husler beats Rune in Seoul. Nishioka beats Shapovalov in Astana. <laughs> the second win in a row for Novak Djokovic, beating Stefano Tsitsipas. And then in Tokyo, Taylor Fritz cracks the top ten for the first time, beating Francis Tiafoe. Let's start with Novak. Yep, you mentioned him being allowed to play tennis again, meaning that there are tournaments being held in countries that he's allowed to travel to. He couldn't do any of the U.S. swing because of his vaccination status, as you well know. So he takes the first plane and appearance fee to Tel Aviv, Israel, for the 250 there. Beats up, you know, pretty cupcake draw until the final with Marin Cilic. Wins the title in Tel Aviv. And then goes to Astana, which is an absolutely stacked Autumn 500 tournament, winning the title there. We're going to focus here on the the quote-unquote allowed aspect of this. Because currently, if Canada had a, a fall indoor Masters 1000, he'd be here. Because <laughs> Canada's laws have changed. Uh-huh. The U.S.'s laws have not changed. And to date... The three-year ban issued against him because of what went down in Australia at the start of the year. That has not been lifted. So as of right now, he would not be allowed into Australia to play the Australian Open. 
and listeners, brace yourselves because this is going to be a fall slash winter of mess concerning this issue. Mm. It's already started to pop up in Australia. I've seen clips already of news segments with people giving lay people, you know, regular citizens giving their little vignette segment feature opinions on whether Novak should be allowed to play. <laughs> um, well, Australia could be like new prime minister, new me, and just say, let's move on from the dark days of last January and avoid all this drama. Uh, I don't know. I don't really care. The thing is like, if it will, be, if it's possible to lord this over our heads throughout the entire Christmas season, they will do it. They meaning the sports media and Novak Djokovic. From what I've seen from the Australian side of it so far, the narrative is super clear. After having gone through it last time, this is not a state issue. This is a federal issue. This is squarely on the federal government. We don't have to worry about... Uh, well, is Craig Talley doing some misleading shenanigans this time? Is there, you know, there's no vagueness about what needs to happen for Novak to be able to play. Nor should there have been last year. I mean, in most countries, immigration is a federal level issue. Talley did try to upend uh, the jurisdictions, essentially massage the rules, but we're not going there. So in Astana, there was this incredible field Five of the world's top 10 were there. Novak faces off against Daniel Medvedev for the first time in a long time. And Medvedev is the first player to really have challenged him at this tournament. At the conclusion of last year, it was reasonable to think that the ATP would be dominated by these two in 2022. That has not happened for a variety of reasons. And so when this matchup finally happened and the play met the moment, it was like, okay, maybe in 2023, this is what will, <laughs> what the tour will look like. Right, maybe. Medvedev has been dealing with injury. He had that hernia surgery earlier this season. He said after Australia that the dream was dead. So you imagine there might be some emotional baggage that's hanging on this season It'll be a very disappointing season for him, regardless of the reason. You say the baggage after Australia, specifically losing the Australian Open final from being two sets and a break up against Rafa Nadal. Yes, but he was specifically referring to how the crowd treated him. And, oh, you know, we talked about this a lot of the time. He doesn't always treat crowds that well either. I think he he was in France recently and he called them all monkeys. In Moselle against Wawrinka, he made this weird monkey gesture at the crowd. Um, I don't know. In Australia, he also called a chair empire a little cat. Yes. Which, well, we inferred his full meaning <laughs> from that at the time. Yes. This is not a dude who is without blemish in his comportment toward his opponent's the officials, and the crowds. But the dream is over. Anyway, Novak and Medvedev were playing a tight match, and after the second set, Medvedev retired from the match, and it seemed abrupt, and people were confused at first. What 
I think we need to like get over here is that everybody on Twitter was like, oh my God, what happened? Nobody knew, everyone was so confused. Like, no, actually Novak knew what was going on because Daniel told him that he was injured. Daniel said in his uh, post-match press conference that he injured his leg. If he had gone on, it has the potential of creating serious damage. And that's why he pulled out. So why like the hair pulling here? But what is... People thought like... What, wait, okay, but what is the uncharitable view of this? That he was two points from winning the match in that tie break. And in a huff and a puff and a blow the house down moment, he just storms off the court because he's being petulant? Yeah. No, the, people literally thought he was like, well, I don't care anymore. I'm leaving. Like, how does ha- this make sense? Have we been that deprogrammed and removed from reality because of the curious shit show in tennis that this becomes a plausible outcome? Right. Uh, let's be clear that Medvedev is not Nick Kyrgios or Benoit Pair. It's actually really shocking to to sort of assume that about a recent number one playing in a match that he has a legit chance against Novak. Yeah, it was just sort of, I don't know, kind of disappointing. If you want to criticize him, like, that's not where I would go. Right. And when players retire from matches because they're injured, we should be uh, maybe not celebrating it, but respecting it. After Roger Federer's retirement, one of the big stats, of course, was that he had never retired from a match on the main tour. And I kept reading it and thinking like, okay, that's great. Like, that's impressive. But is that something we should really be teaching the kids that if you're injured, you shouldn't retire from a match? But is it even impressive or is it just noteworthy because nobody does that? I mean, across the breadth of his career and how many matches he's played, like, yeah, that's impressive. But I don't I don't feel that we should be teaching future stars that this is something that they feel they need to achieve. You know, like if you're injured, you got to stop. And you know the type of injuries that are going to get worse if you continue in a match. This was also a tournament that saw Carlos Alcaraz lose his first main tour match after winning the US Open. Losing to Goffin. Elsewhere in the men's tour this week, I mentioned previously that Taylor Fritz beat Francis Tiafo to win in Tokyo. This after Taylor Fritz, I guess, was in quarantine for having tested positive for covid and was holed up in a hotel room somewhere, and then only arrived in Tokyo on site the day of his first match on the Wednesday, and made his way through the draw. In Seoul, the week before, he tested positive and had to quarantine there for a week, before getting the go-ahead to take, apparently, like a a two-hour flight to Tokyo to play on the Wednesday of this past week at the Tokyo tournament. All right. Are we to assume that there was a COVID mini outbreak at Labor Cup? I think it's fair to assume (laughs) that that was the case. It wouldn't be a leap of faith to believe that uh, at an indoor tournament in the UK that got rid of their restrictions like months and months and months ago. Fritz is the first American man inside the top 10 since John Isner a few years ago. Really? Yes. I mean, who else would it have been? Oh, yeah, I guess. There's just, there are a lot of them like floating around the top 30. Yes. But right now, this match represented the best two on offer, I would say. Mm-hmm. 
Tiafo had the opportunity to crack the top 15 if he won this tournament. Instead, I think he sits at around 17. Yes. Still a career high and builds off of his semifinal run at the US Open. And interesting to me at this tournament, Tiafo seems to have a level of confidence in himself that he hasn't had previously. After one of his matches, I believe it was beating Kitsmanovic in the quarterfinals, he said, my biggest Achilles heel in my career has been that I haven't beaten the guys that I should beat. And that's happening for me now. And I'm hungry. And I want to be playing on Sundays all the time. We talked a lot on a previous episode about how, I think it was at Labor Cup, where there was all this backlash against Tiafo because of that doubles match. Mm-hmm. And we were weary and fearful about what Francis's career and the reception to him would look like, how it would change the more he won, specifically as a, a black tennis player, right? Like we have a, a history of seeing how this unfolds. And I'm wondering, because we've had a few anecdotal stories told to us by people who are not on tennis Twitter that kind of give an impression that maybe we're too wrapped up in the tennis Twitter bubble. Perhaps. I I mean, Francis, if he continues his good form, will have reach outside of tennis like few tennis players do. And I think that's what a lot of these kind of nasty tennis fans don't realize is that, yeah, you feel he's overhyped, he hasn't earned this level of attention, whatever. Tennis desperately needs stars, okay? Like, the core fans are going to stay. But if you want tennis to break through on a, a larger scale like it used to 20, 30 years ago, then you need stars like this. And Francis has charisma. Like, it's it's impossible to deny this. And, and he's, this- bringing, he's bringing eyeballs into the sport for a good reason. And this is what was relayed to us, right? Folks saying, oh my God, I mean, I, I I listened to your episode where you talked about this. And then that same week or shortly before, people are coming up to me at work and be like, oh my God, did you see Tiafo? Amazing. Mm-hmm. People are age and older and even younger people as well. So, you know, maybe there's, I mean, I, this is something I've been grappling with for a while, trying to detach as much as possible from tennis Twitter, because I'm becoming increasingly weary about how it informs how I talk about the sport on this show in particular. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for all the enjoyment that we still glean from it, there is a certain level of toxicity on tennis Twitter that is inescapable. Right, and any online community. Yes. Uh, But beyond that, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing, there's also just a level of detachment from like the regular fan, the casual fan, or people who tune in for a few matches per year like, as much as you don't want to cater the entire sport to those folks, it helps, right? It, tennis is in a precarious financial situation seemingly all the time. Uh, that would help. And what else would help is if there were a reliable way to watch tennis legally week in and week out. And if some of those exciting personalities were playing on Sunday. Okay, let's move on to WTA. Thank God. That's that's about the limit I have for ATP this week. WTA tennis comes to Tunisia, thanks to Anne Shabur. Really, there's no other way to say it. There's a pretty interesting origin story for this tournament. So tell us. 
This is coming from Alex McPherson, writing for the WTA website. Vicky Gunnarsson of IMG apparently watched Anshabur play in the Abu Dhabi EXO last year and was impressed with what she saw. They met each other. There happened to be a WTA tournament sanction available for somewhere, for someone to put a bid in. Ons got Gunnarsson in touch with the head of the Tunisia Tennis Federation, and magic happened. Tunisia got the tournament, had to decide which city to host it in. They had five months to build a site that was suitable for a WTA main tour level event. They picked Monastir, which previously had an ITF event, but didn't have a a stadium big enough to host this kind of tournament. Now, they could have hosted it in the country's biggest city and capital, Tunis, but they chose Monastir for several reasons. One was the tennis connection, but also it's the birthplace of Tunisia's first president, and also the politician credited with emancipating the women of Tunisia. Women first went to school under his administration. So there is like a sentimental connection with Tunisian women and this city. And Anjabur is based on, I mean, what the Tunisia Tennis Federation says, the biggest thing in Tunisia right now. Everybody's talking about her. She has literally quadrupled the participation in the National Tennis Federation. A recent example in tennis history of how one player's success has led to a boon, an explosion of tennis in their home country is Lina. We're mm-hmm. seeing it again now with Anjabur and we and people in the tennis media, just regular people, talk all the time about how when somebody like Ons wins a big tournament or plays well, wow, this is going to be so great for Arab tennis. But we don't always materially see that play out. This is the manifestation of that. Right. Without question. And it just so happened that it occurred right around the same time as Maya Sharif winning as well. So this tournament is called the Jasmine Open. It's named after the National Flower of Tunisia and also after the 2011 revolution that saw the overthrow of its government. So there, like, politics has been built into this tournament from how they chose the site to how they named the tournament. The fact that Ons did not win does not matter at all. Like, it's it's the least interesting thing about this tournament happening. That said... We just had quite a few tournaments where big-time, top-flight names on the WTA Tour were playing at home, and only one was able to win their home (laughs) tournament. And that was Ms. Barbora Krejcikova. The greatest of them all. Iga Sviantek played in Warsaw in the summer, got to the quarterfinals. Annette Kontovate played in Tallinn a few weeks ago. Her semifinal against Kaya Kanepi to Estonians was attended by the Prime Minister of Estonia. Kontovate lost in the final to who? Krejcikova. Anshabur has a home tournament in Tunisia, lost to Claire Liu, surprisingly, in the quarterfinals, and Elisa Mertens eventually won that tournament. But now we get to Ostrava, which is has truly become a highlight uh, on the post-US Open calendar. Ostrava is just about 10 miles away from the Polish border, so it attracted a ton of Iga Świątek fans, 
a lot of Czech fans, obviously, and it created just this very electric atmosphere at the matches. Ostrava always has a, a really stacked field. Well, I mean, the, there's so many top Czech players. <laughs> right. If you staged a tournament with only the best Czech players, you'd have a, a really good tournament. Krejčíkova ends up going back-to-back, clearly fully back to top form. The form that saw her reach world number two, that saw her double up at a Grand Slam, winning singles and doubles at the French Open. She is not a fluky player. (laughs) Barbora Krejčíkova is one of the very best tennis players on the women's tour, period, point blank. Yeah, I mean, she's been killing it in doubles this year. But her singles game had really suffered. And it had fallen off from really her breakout year and her only year as a top player, 2021. There were injuries. Right. But there's just something about her that's so solid. And not only, you know, her ground strokes are solid and smooth and and very pleasant to watch. But also, mentally, it seems difficult to trip her up. Muguruza sort of cursed her at the U.S. Open and got her moving forward, of course. But (laughs) Babs seems unflappable because she just is so stone-faced on court when she wins, loses, whatever. In this match, we saw the full repertoire of both players. Yeah. I mean, people are calling it the best women's match of the year. And who's going to argue with that? Well, the people who said that that Kerber match was the best match of the year. Which one? The Kerber Kaya Juven final in Strasbourg earlier this year. Oh, okay. This one had the benefit of featuring the world number one and by far the best player in the WTA tour being taken to task and beaten. And then you put in to the mix the the home crowd for Krejčíkova and because of the proximity to Poland, Sviantek as well. Mm-hmm. It was an electric, electric moment. It was, it was really incredible. Like, about three hours long. At the end, Iga saved, what, five match points with just ridiculous stuff. Audacious. She decides, oh, I'm going to slice my forehand for a while, or <laughs> I'm going to draw her in and hit this incredible pass down the line. It's just absurd what she can do down a match point, and it gives you the feeling that, well, it's, I mean, <laughs> it's not over till it's over. And as an opponent, I can imagine feeling like you cannot assume anything against Iga. Which is why, in the end, it probably required that ace from Krejcikova <laughs> to win that match. Right. That forehand slice, inside-out slice approach shot winner on the second match point, that is Stupid. ridiculous. Like, I could not believe my eyes. Krejcikova was serving really well down the stretch, too. That sliding out wide serve on uh, on the deuce side was really effective. It's just, it's very cool to watch two players playing at this level. It reminds you that Iga has so many tools that you forget how fast she is or how creative she can be, that she possesses a lot of touch, and she can be like a boom-boom kind of just demoralizing power player at the same time. But I am here for the uh, the Sviantek Krejčíkova number one and two rivalry. That's what I'm here for. This whole thing is interesting to me because 
I feel like there was a lot of resistance to Krejcikova as a top player for quite a while, for oh, the yeah. majority yeah. of her initial rise as a singles player. And now it seemed, based on my cursory perusal of the timeline yesterday, that most people are just here for it. <laughs> like, this, like all of a sudden, her game is undeniable, that she's a force. Uh, uh, we've seen this happen before. I think what it is is... At first, it's this person is an imposter and she doesn't deserve to be here. And then, and so that's like the ridicule stage. Then there's kind of this hipster stage of diehard fans. But I think this has been born mostly out of irony. Like people start standing her to be ironic because they oh, find her amusing. But I the, see. The necklace, my necklace is broken. Uh, the same kit that she never. You know, she never got a new kit for the entire year. I love top five player. that there like, is a new wardrobe on court. I love it. The thing is, I, I honestly think a lot of these stands started ironically, and it's become genuine. Well, when somebody like Iga Sviantek has such an impregnable record in finals, to the point where everybody just expects her to steamroll everybody in a final, and then to do this. Right. This is not Iga playing badly. This is you going toe-to-toe and showing, and as Anita Baker said, giving it the best that you've got. (laughs) No, this is playing an Iga who is in really good form and just, you know, winning the points that matter on that day. Iga was incredibly emotional after this match. Yes. And, you know what, I like to see it. I love it. Like, okay... Sure, it's a 500 and she lost. You don't think she should be emotional? There can be a million different reasons that someone is crying after a match. And part of it might be, wow, this was cool to be a part of this and I'm grateful for where I am. Yeah, and how many times do we hear people getting lambasted for not caring about tennis? About just going through the motions not taking their career seriously. This is a woman who takes her tennis incredibly seriously. Right. And the other thing that I want to add about Sviantek is I feel she's at a place now with a certain level of comfortability in her shoes that she's operating as one would hope a world number one would using her platform. Mm. Yeah, go on. The the genesis of this, for me, was the lead-up to the U.S. Open, where she was very candid about her dislike for the U.S. Open balls. And we were guilty in participating in the mocking of that whole situation, I think, to an extent. I don't know why you... I saw that you wrote that, and I no, but we really took, don't know what you're talking about. We took her seriously, but then we took a few jabs. A little play, playful jabs here I or there. I don't your, agree at all. Your memory may just not be what it once was. We explained the difference between the balls. We questioned why they were different. The reasons that the USTA gives for having different balls. Uh, I don't think we were making fun of her. I think that's unfair. No, I think you're not understanding what I'm saying. I'm saying we presented it as a serious thing and did all that explaining. And then on subsequent episodes, there were a couple like light-hearted moments that made fun of it a little bit. That's all. Oh, okay. I think that's allowed. Okay. (laughs) But part of the discourse surrounding that was, well, wow, 
what a complainer. What a complainer. Just show up and play the tennis. And then again, recently, when she tells us that, you know, the schedule is a mess, like this is not conducive to taking players' health seriously, having to jet set all over the world across continents and time zones to play tournaments from week to week. And that would explain why she's not going to play. Which one is it? Billie Jean Cup? Yeah. That's that's using your platform for good, in my opinion. Right. I mean, it's like it's sort of funny that people would want players to stop complaining and just put their head down and play tennis. But if they put their head down and play then tennis boring. and everything is great and wonderful and I love tennis, then they're boring. I get not being all that interested in what she's complaining about. Fine. But this, these are things that are important to her and probably other players. I think the criticism over the latest thing is really unfair. She's saying from the WTA finals to BJK Cup, I have one day to get from Texas to, where is it? Oh, Glasgow, Scotland. Yeah, so if you don't want to play, don't go. Like, I I support her. And the fact that she's shedding light on this being an unreasonably quick turnaround and not great for players' bodies is good. It also aligns with her long-standing at this point directive to bring awareness to mental health issues yes period this past week in ostrava it was the second time that she's donated her entire purse money her winnings from the tournament to causes to bring awareness to mental health issues and to people who are saying oh she's going off to san diego after playing in czechia well the tournament in san diego has guaranteed her a thursday start so Sunday to Thursday is quite different than a one-day turnaround. Also in Ostrava, pay attention to Alicia Parks. My God, what a moment for her. Yeah. Winning doubles and then also coming through qualifying to make the quarterfinals, beating Karolina Pliskova and Maria Sakkari in back-to-back matches. Bageling Pliskova in the first set. If you If you did not watch any of her matches... I implore you to go watch some of the extended highlights. Her serve is so good. She has this lithe, athletic way of moving around the court that tells me that this is somebody who could improve exponentially quickly Mm -hmm. in combination with her power game. She paired with Katie McNally in the doubles. Katie just, she plays with the black girls only. That's her move. (laughs) (laughs) usually usually they're pulling her you know no shade should i not have said that i'm not gonna touch that one (laughs) i you may just be referencing certain pairings with coco goff in the past and most recently taylor townsend Mm -hmm. but good good for katie she was a quarter finalist in singles as well she beat comeback kid muhova and lost to Iga four and four. I mean, plenty of people get bageled by Iga. There was a there were a few other interesting things about this tournament. Karolina Mukhova is continuing on her comeback from injury. She beat Hadad Maya in the opening round. Eugenie Bouchard is back. Yeah. Taking she is. Belinda Bencic to three sets. She's been back for a couple of weeks and she has given a good account of herself the entire time. All right, I know you stand, so... I stand solely because I appreciate that Jeannie still puts in the hard yards. Mm -hmm. 
That's it. Do I think she has the most beautiful That's game? Nur. She is still out here trying, and she doesn't have to be. And Wimbledon champion Elena Robakina has continued a pretty good stretch post-US Open. She reached the final in Slovenia, semifinals here, beating uh, Badosa, beating Kvitova. And this is probably a topic for another day, but I feel like Rybakina kind of cheapened her own Wimbledon victory by saying, by being frank and honest about the fact that she didn't feel like a Wimbledon champion. I think the second you put that out there, people are like, okay, well, I guess it wasn't, it was an asterisk. That's just me. I think that's so unkind. Well, I, sometimes the truth hurts, you know? Those were her legitimate feelings. (laughs) Yes. But once you tell people, I didn't feel like I was, it was a legitimate Wimbledon or didn't feel like I was the Wimbledon champ. Then I think you give license to people to say, well, I guess you weren't then. Right, but tournament organizers were already treating her like that yeah. with court assignments. Hmm. <laughs> well, look, look, there's one of those rare moments where we are in disagreement. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you should be out here saying, like, I am the fucking Wimbledon champion, period. Yeah, I know, you know that like... that was one of the things you enjoyed most about being a Serena Williams fan. <laughs> and it's something you look for in everybody. But I appreciate a little bit more vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Not everybody has to have that. I get it. Wow. It's just what, one one person's bad opinion. What a detour. Something that you'll enjoy talking about here. I, I love how this has become one of your things. I didn't even have it on the agenda and here it comes. It gets popped on like clockwork at that tournament in Tunisia. The doubles winners were Kiki Mladenovic and Siniakova. And you have written here on the agenda, bitch, no, Mladenovic is speaking Arabic? <laughs> <laughs> Miss 25 languages. Was that one of the 25? I don't know. She attempted a little Arabic in her trophy presentation speech. And I think we're all living. Anshabur gave it her, uh, her seal of approval. She was probably just being nice. You have no way of being judge of that. (laughs) But I love that she attempted, and this is knowing your brand. This is taking uh, something that somebody said about you to hurt you and making it your brand. And I'm I'm living for it. You have other things listed there about this moment? Yes, yes. The other thing, more tennis-related, is that this is Kiki's 28th doubles title. It's Siniakova's 20th and her 11th final win in a row. And among Siniakova's finals win streak is four majors, the Olympic gold medal, and the WTA finals. That is pretty wild. That's like a like an Iga Shiontek finals win streak on the singles tour. But Kiki and Katarina are really you know, putting their hats in for the best doubles players of their generation. They are the doubles it girls right now. And Babs. Yes. Don't don't forget. (laughs) We've talked about on the show that there are about a handful of men on the ATP tour who are currently facing charges of domestic violence. Yeah. Uh, One of them has been away from the game for about five months, so we haven't really had to talk about him that much. But when one goes away... 
One has a career renaissance. Nick Kyrgios' case has been in the court system for a little while now. His hearing has been adjourned again until February of next year. The news here is that we learned what his defense is going to likely be. Yes. His lawyers are expected to argue that the case be dismissed under a mental health defense. And a law in Canberra allows judges to dismiss a charge if they are satisfied that an accused person is mentally impaired and dealing with an allegation in that way would benefit both the community and the defendant. And his lawyers are citing numerous examples where Nick spoke about mental illness, self-harm, being in a bad place emotionally, and that that would convince a judge that he was mentally impaired when he committed said crime. Now, from what I understand, this defense doesn't actually require Nick to admit to any wrongdoing. It doesn't force him to plead guilty to anything or to say that, I, yes, I did this. It's actually stopping the case before it gets to that point to just to dismiss the charges altogether. Do, do you have anything to say about that? I sat there in disbelief when I read through this news report. Mm -hmm. It stirred far more feelings of cynicism in me and disgust than it did sympathy. Yeah, I think overall, the... Look look at us tiptoe trying to find <laughs> well, the right words you know, here to discuss this topic. The thing is, because I think the prison population should be kept at a bare minimum, uh, but is citing a mental health defense restorative justice? Does it in any way include restitution to the survivor or victim of violence? What does justice look like for that person? Does it involve any level of accountability going forward? This is what I want to know. I'm not advocating for more carcerality. What I'm advocating for is people being held responsible for what they do. Mm -hmm. And if in any way possible, our legal system making it right or, or providing some measure of justice, whatever that looks like, to the survivor of abuse. Also to have a way of really getting at whether somebody is gaming the system. And I know that that is or can be seen as distasteful to somebody who is coming forward and putting their hand up as needing help with their mental health, right? right? right. But in a situation where somebody's able to offer that as a defense, I want to know how that is investigated as a valid defense yeah yeah that'll be interesting to me because you know people have said well he's well enough to travel the world and play tennis i would argue that his behavior on court are would probably be a good example of him not being well enough to travel the world and play tennis but aside from all that he's cultivated a successful career going around the world and playing the sport He's making a living on his own. Like, you can have a mental illness, but also be responsible for your actions. Mm -hmm. It doesn't excuse allegedly abusing a partner. Right. This is where I'm struggling. Because there are millions of people who struggle daily with their mental and emotional health and do not abuse people. And wouldn't want to be placed in the same category as someone yes. who does. So for me, this whole thing took a seedy turn. 
It did because there is a segment of like incel Twitter and more broadly misogynistic Twitter, which would never afford that type of empathy to Kiara or to a woman accusing a man of assault. They would never allow that person to have a mental illness and to feel empathy for what they're going through. We posited on the show that it was just a little bit convenient that after these charges were levied, that Nick Curio started to quote unquote, take his tennis career more seriously. <laughs> and so there, there are just a lot of convenient happenings for him in the last few months for me after this came to light. And I do not have the bandwidth to grant any grace to him at this point. A few more et ceteras before we wrap up this episode. It looks as though Emma Raducanu's season might be over. Might be. I don't know that we've gotten confirmation about that, but a wrist injury has forced her to pull out of Transylvania, which is a tournament that's important to her because it's in Romania, in Cluj-Napoca. They do keep promoting her as leading the Great Britain BJK Cup team. So Tickets have to be sold. <laughs> right. That tournament is holding out hope that she will be there. I don't know whether or not she will. Is it one of those cases where you know a player's playing schedule, their history, where they are in their career, and you know that they're not going to play Canada and Cincinnati back-to-back? And then you just have to... Oh, but you have to promote. You have the, to promote it. And then you as a fan have to either fall victim to the charade, you know, not really knowing <laughs> what's going on. You know, you just get told, oh my God, this person's playing Canada and Cincinnati. Can't wait. You know, that's another thing about tennis. For people who don't follow it week in and week out, it's very disappointing when they spend a lot of money on tickets and their favorite player isn't there. It happens all the time. It's yeah. happened to us before. Mm-hmm. That said, a wrist injury is very serious. Yes. Oh, no, I'm not saying that she should play. I'm, I'm just saying... No, that's not what I'm saying. The many I'm problems s- with tennis. Oh, I understand. I'm saying that this is why I think it's likely her season is done. Yeah, and it's probably advisable, honestly. In good news, Nadia Podoroska of Argentina has come out as a lesbian. She came out on Instagram uh, while wishing happy birthday to her girlfriend, Guillermina Naya, who is also a tennis player from Argentina, and got a shout out from Billie Jean King. If you recall, Nadia is a former French Open semifinalist, making the semifinals of Roland Garros at the fall edition in 2020. Looking toward uh, finals qualifications for a moment, on the men's side, we have discovered that Novak Djokovic will qualify for the ATP finals. Maybe everybody knew this, like, and, and I was just slow. But I mean, the, this is one of two things that it seems that a lot of people knew that I did not know. Right. The second I, one to come when we close the episode. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so Novak will qualify regardless because he won Wimbledon. I think you need to be in, like, the top 20 of the race if you win a slam and don't qualify as a top eight. This question was posed on Twitter and people just went off. But it's a legitimate question. The Wimbledon points did not count. There were no points given out by the ATP or WTA. Why would you assume that those points count toward the race? Why why would that be why would it be unreasonable to ask the question? I'm not saying one way or the other, but simply asking the question is totally reasonable considering both tourists' stance on Wimbledon this year. 
And not a direct attack at one player. No, but every... Not an agenda. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, let's move on to WTA finals. Three players are locked in. I don't know that the WTA has confirmed the third, but other sources have confirmed that the top three are Iga, Ons, and Jesse Pagula going mm -hmm. to the finals. And you have here written, there are around 20 other people currently having a chance to qualify. And yeah. the tournament starts in 20 days. Like 20 players. Mm -hmm. Think what Barbara Krejcikova can come out of nowhere and it's a long shot, but she could qualify for the finals. Well, this is where the fall schedule becomes a problem. Yes. With tournaments all over the globe, all over the continents, and it being different from previous seasons. We understand that the WTA has had to pivot and act quickly on its feet or do things unconventionally to make sure that there are tournaments. You know, right. we know that there are right. far fewer tournaments on the WTA this season than there have been on the ATP Tour. It's been a struggle. Mm -hmm. And one of the fallouts from that is that the schedule is haphazard. And so now these 20 women, if they want to play every week to ensure maximum points, maximum opportunity to make this lucrative and prestigious event, it's this is what Ego is talking about. Yeah, it's it's difficult. Uh, in previous years, they could have stayed in the same few time zones in East Asia, across mm -hmm. China, Korea, Japan, Taiwan. This year, obviously, there are no Chinese tournaments for actually two separate reasons. One is a WTA boycott of China and also COVID protocols, making it difficult or impossible to hold tournaments there at all. And what we have left is, yeah, there have been a lot of tournaments over the past few weeks, but there's not a whole lot left between now and the WTA Finals. There's a 500 in San Diego. The following week, there's a 1,000 tournament in Guadalajara, Mexico. The only other option is a 250 in Romania. So if you want to stay in Europe, you have very limited opportunities and a fewer pool of points to try to qualify. You finally have a did you know for me. Yeah. Which I guess probably a lot of people knew, but we didn't. It's a did you know that I didn't know. Does that count? Yeah. As long as I pass it on. I didn't know it either. Okay. So this is courtesy of Matt Trollope on Twitter. He tweeted this random Australian Open, quote, factoid, that at the 1988 Australian Open, in the qualifying tournament, Gail Falkenberg won a match. How old was she? Well, she's 75 now. So doing the quick math, that was 34 years ago. She was 41. Oh. She was 40-41 in 1988. She won a match in qualifying before losing in round two to the number one seed, Lindsay Bartlett. But you know who else was in that qualifying tournament for the 1988 Australian Open? Who? I did not even know that this person played tennis, but it makes so much sense. Super agent, Jill Smaller. <laughs> I, I didn't know that either. Did all of you know this? That Jill was... A former tennis player? And if you don't know who Jill is, she is the long time, pretty much Serena's entire career, she was her agent. Currently agent for Francis Tiafo and Danielle Collins. Yeah. At that tournament, Jill went around further than Ms. Falkenberg. She reached the final round of qualies, losing to the 12th seed Jennifer Fuchs. And then Jill got into the main draw as a lucky loser. 
Jill Smoller played Grand Slam singles tennis at the main draw level. And that was the year that Steffi Graf won, kicking off her calendar year Grand Slam. Gold Grand Slam. Yeah, as, um, yeah that, there you go. So yeah, definitely let us know if we were just complete oblivious morons and you all knew this because this was total news to us. That's all we got. Mm-hmm. We'll be back to you soon to talk. You know we love to talk about rankings and finals qualifications. So we'll be talking about that next week and the week after. This is episode 32 of season 8. I finally did the math. Okay. We, I think we are exactly on pace to keep up or historical pace per season. <laughs> I think we've been doing around 36 per year, yeah. or we did last year. We have to get cracking on some kind of special episode. Yes. So trust that we are working in the background, even as we're doing like week-to-week tennis updates. Thank you to everybody who's bought pet merchandise. I want to use this as a, a solicitation for those of you who have pets, who now use BodyServe, blankets, pet bowls, what have you. We are considering doing a little Instagram thing whereby, with your permission, if you send us a photo of your pet with the merch and tell us their name, if you consent to us using that photo, then we will put it up on Instagram. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. This is the Body Serve, and you can find everything Body Serve related at linktree.com slash the Body Serve. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you very much.